Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. The Gross National Happiness Centre in Bhutan. Dr. Brené Brown's Dare to Lead program. The Hunger Project Australia. The Shift Series, Being a Parent. An endurance athlete running 42 kilometre to 100 kilometre races. A dedicated gardener, aspirational flower farmer and author of a terrific book. Kemi Nectarpil is one of Australia's leading credentialed coaches. She works in all sorts of spaces, particularly in and around female executives and entrepreneurs. She is an empowering person, and we are just so excited to be talking with her on the Game Changers today. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is the uh, People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you this morning? Well, Adriano, people are a little bit disappointed, I have to say. Why is that, Phil? Well, there we were. We offered you the chairmanship and patron space for the Pineapple on Pizza Festival. And wow. you turned it down. You just poo-pooed all of it. You call yourself an inclusion man and you just wrote us out of the picture. Well, let me tell you, we're disappointed. I can't believe you went down the line of correlating pineapple on a pizza and inclusion, Phil. Like, seriously, that's a real stretch. You stick with your quinoa and your fixie box and let's get on with this wonderful chat. Uh, Kemi, I'm so delighted to have you on Game Changers Series 10. I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story and how did you get to where you are today? Oh, I am so honoured to be here with both of you. Firstly, I need to let you know that I am a pineapple on pizza fan. Um, up road, just up the road from Fitzroy in Brunswick East. So I can't believe this. Tottenham supporter, pineapple fan. This is just going downhill in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about myself. Um, I was born in England in the 1970s. Um, my heritage is Nigerian. And it's interesting as well to be on this podcast and talking about education. And I think to look at how education or the stories around education have possibly shifted. So in the 1970s, many, many middle-class Nigerian parents had their children fostered to white families in England so that they could have the best education possible. And Mm -hmm. obviously that story comes from colonization, that Mm -hmm. they believed that that was the only form of education that was worth anything. And that meant that I had five primary carers from the age of two weeks to 13. 
And one of my most stable, I suppose, systems within that was school. I was someone that adored school because I loved having the rhythm and the routine and the structure. I'm somebody now who is an avid learner and an avid reader. And yet I would definitely say because of my race at that time, I was not pushed to my potential. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a sense of, well, you're a foster child, well, you're black and I was the only black child at school, you're black and you're fostered, therefore the fact that you even turn up, you know, we're just happy that you're doing that. And, but I loved, I loved education. Um, and then I'll oh, look, to be honest, so many, I'm one of those people that had a portfolio career before it became cool. So I left school, I trained as a baker, I went from baking to chefing, I went from chefing to being a professional and successful actor in England for seven years working with on TV, working with the Royal Shakespeare Company, working with the National Theatre Company, left that to go back to chefing. And then met a man in Thailand, who's now my husband moved to Australia 18 years ago, and trained as a yoga teacher as well in between that. And I'm now an executive and professional coach, professional speaker, and the author of three books. Is that enough for now? Is that is that enough? No, I don't think you've been busy enough. It's not terribly extraordinary in any way. I mean, seriously. <laughs> but, but just listening to to your sharing there, and thank you very much for taking us down that that journey. There were moments along that particular journey for me listening where I, the word curiosity kept coming into my head, that here we are encountering a, a, a dynamic individual who is forever curious. Where do you think that has come from? I don't know. And I love that you see it as curious. I think, and I'm happy to take that on 100%. I'm definitely a very passionate person. Mm -hmm. So I become passionate about things and then I want to learn everything I possibly can about that thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I feel, I suppose then that's where the curiosity comes in because then I become curious about something else and then I get passionate and then I take that on until I become curious about something else. It's only really been in the last few years when I have been sharing my story more about the things that I've done that I look back and go, wow, that is a lot. That is quite a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And yet the thing that holds them all together has been my passion and love of those things. I think sometimes, I mean, I would hope that most humans are naturally curious, you know, and remain forever curious. Mm -hmm. I think the magic happens when we then step into that space and challenge us ourselves in those new spaces. So mm -hmm. Baker, yoga on the stage, uh, you know, screen, uh, writing books. What is it about Kemi that continues to draw you to the space and the permission of vulnerability? Mm, wow, that's a deep question. As someone that works in the vulnerability space, I think, because it is vulnerable, you're right, whenever we step into something new that we don't know if we're going to succeed or fail, I, I don't have a fear of failure. You know, I actually talk about in my book, I don't like this kind of idea that there's no such thing as failure, that this all has to be a lesson to be learned. I believe that, no, sometimes we just fall flat on our faces mm -hmm. and failure brings us to our knees. And there's a resilience that's built in that, but failure can be a failure because it is a failure. Vulnerability for me, I think I was very, well, I know, because I know that my one of my foster mothers used to write to my social worker and say that I wasn't vulnerable. And I used to think that vulnerability was about being emotional. So I'm actually a very emotional, sensitive person. And yet I had a lot of barriers and armor around me because one, because of the kind of abuse I would get at school and, and racism, mm -hmm 
that was I was dealing with constantly, but also that armor of kind of having to protect myself because I didn't know who my new mum and dad would be. Mm-hmm. So even though I would fall into these families and very much think this is it, this is my new mum and dad, I get to stay here, I would also know that could change in a moment. So there was this kind of balance of being vulnerable and yet knowing that vulnerability could be a really scary space to be in. So when you're in those spaces that can awaken and uplift, but at the same time can challenge and Mm. and be really frightening, as you've just Mm. highlighted there, and really scary, how are you compassionate to yourself? I think it is so easy to be compassionate when you have experienced the other side. But I also know that for people that find themselves in tough situations, compassion is really hard for them to find because they haven't experienced that. So I would say that my first primary carers were full of compassion and care and love. So obviously that was my grounding. Also, I have a 25-year meditation and yoga practice, and that is definitely a practice of compassion for myself and compassion for others. As a coach, part of my role is to be with the human experience without judgment of that human experience. So once again, a practice of compassion. I believe that we're probably all born compassionate, and yet I think the world can very easily erode our compassion unless we're committed to a regular practice and exposure to compassion. You know, your first book, The Gift of Asking, is this, is this powerful read about stepping into the profound space of permission. That's what we're talking about here, right? Mm. Of saying yes to self. There's enormous courage in that. When was the moment you discovered that empowerment piece? Oh, it's interesting because I believe that empowerment builds in moments and moments. And actually, The Gift of Asking was my second book. Sorry, and yeah. No, no, that's fine. And the reason that I wrote that book is because I realized how many women in particular, regardless of where they were in terms of titles, CEOs, executives I was working with, mums at home, entrepreneurs, or a woman that has all of those things, because we can be all of those things at once, um, that a lot of women are afraid to ask and to give themselves permission that we're that we wait for permission consciously or unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And actually for me, it was when I bought my first flat in London, I was very blessed with the work I did within acting that I could get my own flat, my own home at a very young age in my early twenties. And my sister moved in with me. And I, if I do say so myself, used to hold some incredible roof parties at my apartment in Notting Hill. Yes. And, but every year I would spend the morning of my birthday in tears because nobody had helped me. Nobody had volunteered to make the cake, although I was the baker and I could make it and loved doing it. Nobody had helped with invitations. No one had helped. And I remember one year I was crying, you know, outside my sister's bedroom. She said, what's wrong? You know, why are you crying? And I said, I've had to do all this myself. No one has helped me. They expect me to do it all the time. And she just said, hey, Kemi, first of all, Whenever, anyone, whenever you ask anyone to do anything, you have such high expectations that they never measure up to. So no one wants to help you. And two, you never ask. So why would anyone help you? Mm. And I always say, and that is the power of siblings, you know, <laughs> especially those that just speak the truth. Yeah. And it, it really resonated with me because one of my narratives growing up was you cannot count on anyone. You need to count on yourself. And one of my foster mothers, that was constantly, if you want a job done properly, do it yourself. And so I went around with this kind of like, I will do everything myself until I found out it was incredibly isolating and incredibly lonely. And that was when I started practicing to ask for help and support from others. And that would be, that would probably be one of the defining moments. Yeah, it's really fascinating listening to that. I mean, we've just had an opportunity now to explore a little bit about curiosity, a little bit about 
compassion and a little bit about courage. But I'm getting a sense that Kemi is, is a dynamic woman of great conviction and has over a period of time through these life experiences and encounters with the other developed a particular philosophy of a way of being in many ways. We work a lot with school leaders. Some are devoid of conviction and are really good at just compliance. Mm. How do we help particularly school leaders and, and educators step into the agency of their voice and step into the agency of their conviction? Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I imagine that's a word that so many people don't even, it's not even within their realm of vocabulary or, or what they're necessarily thinking about. I, my last foster mother, Sue Price, was a teacher and my father-in-law and mother-in-law started the Steiner School here in Canberra 38 years ago. So I'm around educators. And one thing I know as a coach, as a human being in this world, we need to be doing our own work. And I think one of the most powerful things we need to be doing as educators, whether that's in the educational system or outside of that, is to have a very, very clear idea of what our core values are. If we don't know what our core values are, how do we know why we're stepping into that classroom? How do we know why we're teaching and sharing the stories we're sharing or teaching what we're sharing? It is so easy to comply because in some ways it's safe. It's not igniting. It's not creative. It's not challenging. It's not necessarily brave. But once again, that comes down to vulnerability. We have to be willing to create the spaces for others to be vulnerable. And we cannot do that authentically unless we are willing to be vulnerable ourselves. Kemi, I'm, I'm sitting here and just loving the conversation between um, you and the art teacher here. And just the gentle exploration of some, some really challenging stuff and the way in which you're able to get to the heart of the matter mm. straight away. I'm interested in who was the great coach you had that helped you think about becoming a coach yourself? So I did, I've had many coaches because we outgrow our coaches. That's how coaching works. You know, we Absolutely. should be taken to a certain level and then we realise, you know, the coaching relationship is one of not of codependence, but of our work here is done. You know, you're ready for someone else now. So I've had many coaches, but I remember witnessing a woman called Gatanjali Kapoor in a personal development course that I was doing woman of colour, Indian, and I remember this very aggressive, you know, toxic masculinity, you know, that kind of old form of masculinity, got up on stage and he was very aggressive towards her and just his energy was quite frightening and I'd grown up around that sort of masculinity. And I can't really remember, I, I share this story in my book, I can't really remember what it was she said to him, but what I do know is that she held her power with him he was trying to power over her, as Dr. Brene Brown would say, and she was with him as a human, as an equal. And by the time he left that stage, we, well, he had access to another part of himself and we witnessed this transformation that happened over 20 minutes. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know what she just did, but I think I would like to be able to train or to learn how you can create a space that is safe enough for someone to explore what is holding them back from being the person they want to be, what is in the way of them achieving the goals that they want to achieve, and what are the stories that they need to let go of now so they can recreate a narrative that empowers them and how they want to contribute to the world as a whole. 
So I would say, and that was probably the first time that I knew that what coaching was, that it's about asking questions. It's not about giving advice. It's not, a, you're not consulting. You're not saying I have an agenda. You need to fit into my agenda. It's saying I'm here with no judgment and no agenda for you to show up and let's explore. And as you said, Adriano, let's get curious around where you are now, where you want to be and what is the gap that we're going to walk alongside each other in to get you to where you want to be or to whom you want to be. Thank you, Kemi. Let's stick with this on, on coaching for a moment. There's a point coming to this eventually. Is coaching always about power and understanding power? No, not at all. Coaching can be many things. It depends on the coach. You know, as a trained yoga teacher as well, it's like yoga, many different schools of yoga, many different teachers, different coaches have different ways of working. For me, it isn't about power. But my third book, Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology, has come from working with female leaders and entrepreneurs and realizing that I have had to have my own journey around feeling powerless in the spaces I found myself in growing up. And the conversations that we're having as women around power now and what it looks like in the world, that for many of us, we haven't wanted to claim the form of power that is one of scarcity. And I'm sort of saying a lot right now, that form of power is playing out. The sort of power where you have to bear, you know, um, sit bare chested on a horse just to declare how powerful you are in the world. Um, that it's a form of scarcity. And if I have power, no one else can have it. And it's a limited resource. I wanted to look at how do we re redefine power, especially for women, a form of power that is created internally, that even if we have the external title of power, that we actually are grounded in a form of power that we carry around with us all the time, that can be diminished all the time, that we give away often because we're strategic and we're smart. And we know that sometimes that's the best thing to do. But to know that we have a sense of power that we can carry with us at all times, that we need to keep rebuilding and that we can share with other people in our lives. You have a particular affinity to working with women. Mm. You don't just work with women. You work with all sorts of people. Yeah. You work with women, you work with men, you work with people in between. That's all, that's all good. But you have a particular uh, affinity for working with women. What's that about? <laughs> It's about, you know, I'm at a point in my career now where I get to work with, I get to work in the spaces where I feel I can have the most impact. So I have a couple of male clients that I work with. And it, what's great about the men that I work with is that they know that I work predominantly with women and, and they still want to work with me because of they want to tap into a certain side of themselves. I was working with a male executive recently and he just said, I never have the conversation with anyone in my life, not even my wife compared to the conversations that I have with you, because he knows that there's a space where he can be vulnerable, maybe in a way that he hasn't been able to be before. Um, I love working with women. It's as simple as that. You know, I have a young child that identifies as non-binary as well. So once again, I, I work with people that resonate with the work that I do. Predominantly, that is women, but it isn't always the case. Groovy. Excellent. Groovy. Gro wow, haven't heard that one for a while, Phil. I'm, I'm bringing it let's back. Hope we, let's I'm, hope we don't. I'm bringing it back. Just like <laughs> I'm bringing it back. No, I'm with you. Groovy. I'm bringing back chocolate no. brown suits and pineapple on pizza. <laughs> I have one more question, which sort of which, which sort of ties all of this together. Uh, we come from a field, education, where we don't coach on the whole. 
Mm. Um, or historically, we haven't. Now, both Adriana and I do some coaching work as well too, and we love our work with clients, both individual clients and groups of clients and, and so on. But it's not yet an accepted practice. There are two or three parts to this question, but you might want to answer all in one go. So I'm going to ask you the, the two or three questions at once. Why should organisations and industries like education find space to do coaching programs with people? Secondly, if it's not built within in the current budgetary structure, how can we enable people to think that an investment in this type of program is worthwhile? Mm. My first thought about that is how can you expect students and organisations to grow if there isn't a commitment to growth of the people that are leading those institutions? Coaching is important within the education space in particular because if we want to empower young people, we need to be asking them questions so they can work out what it is they want for their lives as opposed to being told. So, you know, I have a husband who works in law. He loves his work. He's a, he's, he's a human rights and environmental barrister. There are so many people within that field that do not enjoy law. They are in that field because we have been told that these are the industries that society recognises and this is what success is. Mm-hmm. I believe if those young people had been asked questions when it came to career, so yes, maybe you got a particular ATAR score, maybe you, know, you, you reach this or it looks like this, But if they had been asked, what do you value? What would a day of fulfillment feel like for you or look like for you? Maybe they'd be in Paris doing fashion, you know, that instead of us trying to fit into industries that are already, you know, very clear of what they should be, that we can ask young people, we can coach young people to work out and feel empowered in the choices that they make so they don't find themselves in midlife or a few years later thinking, why am I here? What was the point of this? What was the point? What was the point of everything that I learned? So I believe that it's important for educators to find some way of learning about coaching or to invest in coaching for themselves because you can't be stagnant as I just don't believe you can be stagnant as a teacher. It's such a hard role that to then have your own personal growth alongside that role is invaluable, not only to you, but to your students, to your colleagues. And I believe it's something that institutions need to create budget and create time for. One final question on this um, before I ask you about running. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't see yourself as a coach, if you don't see yourself as an expert in the growth of others, but rather you see yourself as an expert in a particular type of content and passionate about that content Mm -hmm. rather than necessarily the process of growth, how can we help? that person to see themselves anew Mm. and find for themselves the expertise that's caught within them Mm -hmm. to help other people to grow. Yeah. And it's not even expertise, it's questions. You know, as human beings, we think we think we empower other people when we give advice. And this may be different when we have, you know, if we're working with young people and students, because there is that kind of mentoring that comes in within the teaching space as well, because you are, you know, you're years ahead and you have an idea. So there's advice giving, but there's also when we just ask questions. So we want to go in with the advice. We want to say, I think you should do this, as opposed to what do you think you should do next? You know, it's a question. It opens up. And I promise you, when we ask more and more questions of the people that we spend time with, who we think they are 
And what we think they're thinking is vastly different from what is going on. I can share actually something with you that happened just at some uh, online group coaching program I was doing the other day where somebody had said that they wanted to learn Italian, that they hadn't yet managed to do that because of the caring responsibilities that they had. One of the women put in the chat box, go to Italian classes. And I said, and before she'd done that, I actually said, can no one give advice? I'm sure that everyone has their idea of how that is going to work best for them. But this actual woman, her response was, what I want to do is I want to listen to Italian poetry. I just want to immerse myself in Italian poetry. Very different to I'm going to take myself to an Italian class. And so I think we need to be curious, going back to this idea of curiosity, when we're curious about people, we ask them questions. When we think they need to fit into our expectations of them, we give them advice. I, um, and before Adriano jumps in and starts talking Italian with his hands, as he <laughs> does, the work that we've done, the research that we've done around high-performance learning and the, different, the, the difference between, between people who operate at some sort of high-performance level and those who don't, they might aspire to, is something around commitment and relentlessness. Mm-hmm. And high-performance people that I've met and that I've talked with and that I've learned from are always particularly tough on themselves. It seems, and I don't think that's necessarily intentional in that way, but they are. They're pretty tough on themselves. What's the relationship of long distance running to Kemi? Why do you why do you run a hundred kilometers at a time? <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I'm actually someone that that I'm not tough on myself, and I think, or not, I think I know that it's because of my spiritual practices around yoga and meditation. Um, even when you said the word relentless, I could feel myself contract like that for me is just so harsh and yet the word endurance. So yes, I'm a highly committed person and yet my compassion for myself means that I don't commit to a lot of things. So I can focus and bring a hundred percent of the things that I say yes to. And my compassion means saying no to a lot more things. Endurance running is such a joy for me. You know, I run on trails, so I'm in the forest, I'm in nature. Um, I talk to the insects, I see butterflies and I just decide, oh, you've come to help me run the next 10K. I do it with a group of women um, that I really enjoy spending time with. The trail running community is very different than the road running community. And so it's not about times, it's not about harshness, it's about community and nature and what it takes to commit to something that's hard and to support each other to do it. It's one of my core values is growth. And for me, endurance running is about growth. I know that the person I am at the start line of a race is not the person that is going to cross the finish line. And I am so open to what happens in between. There's so much that we can learn from athletes around simply being better than you were yesterday about the the, the, the PBs, you know, yeah. and, and, and so it's an incremental growth piece, but it's a piece that ensures that athletes are far more in tune with every element of their body and their technique and their practice and their rhythm, you know, so they can continue to grow. It's not just about being faster and stronger. It's, it's an internal um, uh, self-efficacy piece, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And I think it's working out as well. What is it that actually sets you alight? What sets you on fire? When I did my first road marathon, I remember being asked, what's your time? What's your PB? What's your pace? What's your split? What's your, and it was, it was a gift to myself for my 40th birthday. And I just remember thinking, I just want to meditate on the last 40 years of my life. 
that's what I want to do. I don't really care about the numbers. And then I realized road running had a different, it had a kind of a, a different agenda than what I like with the trail running, which is more about community and nature. And that really, that really lights me up. Okay. We're going to move off the track now and, okay. uh, and I'm going to come back onto a different track. Mm-hmm. In, in March this year, you released your third, I got this right this time, I hope, the third book yes. titled Power. Yes. Power, Presence, Ownership, yes. Wisdom, Equality and Responsibility. Yes. And, and it's a book that's designed to provide women with the, the tools to navigate the challenges that, that impact who they are, mm-hmm. everything from the, the space of discrimination and burnout to trauma to self-doubt to their, their unique womanness. Yeah. What does living and leading without apology actually look like? Mm. It is different for each woman. Mm. And yet, because we have all been raised, you know, men included, I don't believe patriarchy works for men either because it limits who men get to be. But most women, we've been raised in a patriarchal society. So as soon as we decided to leave the kitchen sink, we have been made to feel that we don't belong in any spaces apart from in the kitchen sink or in the home. And we know that as women. And so it can feel like the need to be ambitious, the need to want to contribute, to be a leader, that if we want those things, we have to apologize for them. I know for me, as a person of color, navigating mainly white spaces, that I needed to make sure that I was never considered to be the angry black woman, that I never wanted to have an opinion. I never used my voice. I never pointed out things that were missing in case, you know, I would be given a negative something because Mm -hmm. as women as well, we're socialized to be nice and to be available to other people all of the time. And so a lot of women consciously or unconsciously, we are constantly on edge what is it to be a woman? And I don't want to overstep the mark. And yet what we know is that the, all, it, all it takes for a woman to overstep the mark is to use her voice and to share her lived experience, whether that's one of success of being a billionaire, whether that's one of abuse, whatever that is. And we see the vitriol that can come back. And yet what is powerful is that when women share their stories, other women have that permission to do exactly the same. And that's what I talk about, this idea of power not being a scarce resource, that actually in me owning my voice, I want you to own yours and I want you to own yours and you to own yours. So that for me is what power can look like. And it's the opposite of living and leading, you know, with apology. When I was reading parts of your book, I'm glad you said that before about the, the patriarchy doesn't serve, in, doesn't serve necessarily men well as well, because I was reading parts of your book and I felt that, you know, so much can be applied to me in my context, mm-hmm. but I just really love the notion of without apology. There's there's a real um, strength of conviction in that, and we've got to do the work to get to that point, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there's a real powerful piece about showing up. You know, Brene Brown talks. Of, you know, she's quoted Teddy Roosevelt's, um, you know, famous um, man in the arena, woman in the arena, <laughs> um, uh, quote all the time. You know. And I've shared that many times. And when I think about that construct, you know, there's two, there's two constructs in that particular phrase, in that particular passage from Teddy. For me, one is about the construct of love and the other one's the construct of fear. The love is stepping into that arena and saying, I'm here and I'm showing up mm. with the dust, the blood and everything. The fear is often those who choose to take the seat in the stand, you know, the spectator or worse, the critic you know, who's passing judgment because they probably don't have the courage or the conviction 
to get into the arena and do it unapologetically. There's always a condition associated to it. That kind of leads me then to my next question or, or line of thinking around the work that you did in terms of studying and the purpose of the, you know, the, the Gross National Happiness Centre in Bhutan. Uh, what did you learn then about your own capacity to lead? Hmm. It was really interesting. There was quite a few things, a couple of things that happened in Bhutan. One of them was, and this is around curiosity. So we didn't have a fixed agenda for the leadership immersion program that I was a part of. And my husband and I did it together. And I remember saying to him, why is there no agenda? What, what's going on? Why don't we know what's happening? What, why don't we know what's happening? And it's so interesting because obviously Bhutan is a very spiritual culture and they wanted to give us the space for pause and for stillness. And I talk in the book, the power of the pause, the power of presence. And for me, I kind of looked at what emerged from those of us as leaders. We were taken on a trek through the Himalayas and what, it, what emerged in that space. And I talk about in the book that as leaders, we think that our reaction is more powerful than our pause. That has not proven to be the case for me or with clients that I've worked with, that actually our power comes from taking the time to pause. So I'd say that that was number one that I learned in Bhutan. The other thing that I learned as well within that space is that when we are able to admit where our ego shows up and we're able to name it and we're vulnerable enough to put it down, that is where the magic happens. That's where true collaboration happens. So there was a lot of space within that leadership program and also, you know, linking to, to Brene Brown's work as well, where you as the leader are allowed to identify the areas and the stories that you have that no longer serve you. You're in a dialogue, you're imposter syndrome, you're in a critic. And then the actions that you take to mask all of that, there was space within that program for us to be able to name and own those things. So then we were all there as humans and we could take off the titles and take off, you know, the PhDs and whatever it was that maybe had got us into that room because that was not what was going to allow us to create work moving on from that particular leadership immersion program. So I would say they were the two things that I learned, that we were allowed to be humans in the room and we were allowed to pause and that was what leadership looked like and felt like. There's real power in, in once you show up and you, and, and you step into that space and that, that arena, there's got to be times, as you've just illustrated so beautifully, where we are open to a reset or our own kind of contemplation. Uh, and so much of the happiness curriculum of Bhutan encourages individuals to really step into this kind of introspection space so that they can be so much more for others. Mm. You've also trained with in Texas with Dr. Brene Brown, who I just, you know, love and we want on this show, but her people, her control people of the product, con control, control, the control the, the message getting to that point. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you work with her about dare to lead as facilitation, talking about supporting people to be introspective. What are three ways schools could create daring leaders and courageous cultures that are comfortable in stepping into that space of reflection instead of reaction? Mm. It is always going to start at the top. It has to. It has to start with, as I said earlier, it has to start with the people that are running those organisations and those institutions to be willing to do the work, to be reflective. And then to the, the courage in the culture comes from there being no shame in having that space to pause, to reflect, because we can't, unless we're willing to do it as leaders, 
people are going to just be in their default that it's not safe to be vulnerable. It's not safe to reflect. It's not safe to stop. I think one thing we've all learned about COVID and definitely, especially that the leaders of corporate organizations I was working with a lot in 2020, 2021, this whole conversation around mental health now that has opened up, you know, one of the narratives that I had from one of my foster mums was, you know, mental people, we have to cross, I was made to cross the road from anyone. We didn't even have the word mental health then. It was just mental people or crazy people. And I would be taken by the hand to cross the road away from those people. And what we all know is that we all are mental people. We all have mental health. And when I would be speaking to these CEOs and leaders of these organizations, they'll be saying, I don't know how to be with the mental health issues that are currently happening with my team and with my colleagues. And I'd say, well, before we look at them, which is important, how are you dealing with your mental health during this time? And so many of them had not even tapped into their relationship with their own mental health. So it's easy for leaders of organizations and of schools to say, we need to create programs for them over there, for them out there and completely miss that they need to do the work for themselves. Not only does it create safety for their colleagues and their teams and the students within those environments, but it also creates sustainability within their own leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, it also creates a sense of I'm allowed to pause, I'm allowed to stop, and that empowers my leadership because I can do it for longer without overwhelm, burnout, resentful, you know, feeling resentful and anger, which is what happens when we're overwhelmed and burnt out. Let's just talk about that overwhelming and that burning out piece. Um, for a moment because right now is as we're recording on a Wednesday in March um, it's the third year that our profession is trying to manage this great disruption in many ways the actual interference the static the white noise that's going on at the moment is probably not so great as it has been in the past two years and yet our colleagues are tired they are weary and it seems to them that there is no respite mm-hmm. and they are in danger of collapsing in on themselves and taking a very reductionist view of what they're there to do and how they're there to do it and so on. How can we help our colleagues right now to move beyond this zone of feeling burnt out? I think it comes to boundaries. Well, I know it comes to boundaries. And as a coach, it is not my job to give advice and I am very wary of not being an expert in this space. But what I will share around boundaries, when we know that we are in burnout or on the edge of burnout, one, have we spoken about before, we need to ask for support. You know, we we need to be able to reach out and ask for support either within our immediate families or from professionals. It's a no-brainer. We, we, I don't, you know, I have such respect for teachers right now. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law are training up to be teachers right now. And as I said, there's, you know, history of education within, within my family on both sides. It can appear that we just have to keep striving, you know, this relentlessness that you, you mentioned feel like I have to keep going, I have to keep going. The school holidays are coming soon. I have to keep going. But what I know from having lived with a teacher, the school holidays don't necessarily bring respite. The school holidays just bring a build-up of all the work that didn't manage to get done when you weren't in front of the students. And, and you get sick the second that you stop work. 100% because the and body's like... it takes like, you 10 days to get over it. Yeah. And you just reconnect with your family yeah. uh, to, about three days before you have to go back to you work. You have to go back again, exactly. And I think there's this fear of if I stop, it's all going to pile up. And yet we know that when we stop, when we actually allow ourselves to be to rejuvenate and we actually allow rest and recovery, 
that then we can go on for longer. And I know that for some of the listeners to this podcast, that may be really hard to hear because the default is, no, 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 you have no idea how much work I have. I cannot stop. If you don't, though, your body's going to stop for you. That's, that's just how that works. We only have so much until the body would just say, if you're not going to stop, I'm going to stop you. And we know how that looks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a pretty look, is it? And yet it, we, we, we create for ourselves this norm within our industry around, around being bulletproof when, of course, yeah. we're not. No. Um, uh, I, wonder, I wonder if part of the role for leaders is actually to permission conversation around these sorts of things, to permission and then to model it themselves. Need to model but, it. It needs, you know, it needs to be modelled because otherwise I think what, yeah. and that's the thing around, you know, we want to follow leaders. We don't want dictators that just tell us what to do. They're, we have a culture of go, 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 do, do, do. Tell me you're busy. Tell me you're busy. I want to know how busy you are. I want to know how busy you are. I call myself a non-busy advocate. Yeah, busy is just such a, the, the, cult, of, the cult of busyness is just yeah. such a cancer. Busy is the new stupid. It's a new yeah. style. I like that. I haven't heard that. And people yeah. will say to me all the time, I know you're busy in emails. I know you're busy. You must be busy. And I just say all the time, no, I'm not busy. Oh, I just I'm not busy. A bit for me, busy is boring. You know, it's like I'm not busy. If I if I'm busy, I can't be present. If I'm busy, I cannot do my best work. So I'm not mm. busy, and so I think within a society, we know that that has been the default. That has been the norm. Eighties, nineties, busy, busy, busy. Now we know it's about mental health. It's about sustainability. It's about leadership. We want to follow human beings. I want a leader to say to me, "This has been a really tough week for me. Like I'm still here for you, but I need you to know that I've had to really manage my mental health this week." So if you yeah. need to manage your mental health, tell me what it is that you need. How can we support you? Um, these are the conversations that can be challenging for some, can feel boring for others. And yet this is how our humanity, this is how we are connected with each other, knowing that we're not bulletproof, we're not infallible, that we all have times when the overwhelm feels too much and we have to reach out for support in those times. And we'll only do that when we feel that we're in an environment where we won't be judged for asking for help and asking for support. Yeah, such complicated barriers built up within within what we do that, mm. that that need patient patient work unwrapping all of that. You've taught me a lot in this conversation already, Kemi, and I've really enjoyed the way in which you reframed the relentlessness to the endurance. So I want to give you another E, which is about being enterprising. If I look at you, you are a role model of being enterprising. Your enterprise is 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 yourself, but at the same time, it's not yourself. It's about the other. You know, it's 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 you know, it's that notion if you let what's inside you but be driven, you know, by what's outside you and by who's outside you, then away you go. One might even say that you are an entrepreneur. One thing that that, that we're very keen on uh, at Game Changers and the School for Tomorrow is encouraging more um, uh, young people, particularly uh, more girls and women, to enter and lead in the space of entrepreneurship right across the board, not just those spaces that women traditionally were permitted by whatever social rules and mores were in place to show entrepreneurship, but in all sorts of um, uh, social, cultural, um, environmental, economic, political spaces that, that, that allow them to find their own enterprise. What can we be doing more? What can we be doing differently? What can we be doing to encourage more girls, more women to become entrepreneurs? 
Mm, God, I love talking about entrepreneurship. And 100% I am an entrepreneur. What I have created is from who I am and, you know, what I've seen in the marketplace. There's definitely a role for teachers around that. I think, you know, my, my final foster mum was a careers teacher. And, you know, instead of, it, it's a case of showing the diversity of different ways that we can earn money, earn a living and contribute to, to others. I raise my children. I have an, my, my son turned 18 last Monday. Um, so now I have an adult, young adult in the house. And my youngest is 16. My husband, as I said, is in a very, very, um, you know, old school industry. Okay. Law. But I said to him, I want to raise children that know that they can make money whenever they want to. They just need to work out what is what do people want and what is the gap that is missing. And now both of my children know that they can earn money whenever they want to. During COVID lockdown here in Melbourne, my youngest was making face masks out of Nigerian fabric that my mother would send over to them. And when we went up, we took our kids out of school and ran around Australia for 387 days. And we decided we'd have an entrepreneurial fund. And we just said to them, if you can create a business on our trip and make a certain amount of money, we will then match that amount of money and we'll teach you to invest it. So once again, just giving them access that there are different ways in which to earn money and then how to use that money. My son cleaned cars. He's really into cars and things. Um, Clean cars and caravans for people. And my youngest would take pictures of some of the incredible Australian landmarks. We'd go to office works whenever we'd approach one. They'd laminate the bookmarks and sell them to the grey nomads that were missing their grandchildren because they were eight years old and the, all the grandparents fell in love with my youngest. And they made money that way. I think as educators, it's just constantly showing young people, different women with different businesses and the stories of how they have created those businesses, because that's what opens up. That's what makes them curious. Oh, maybe I could, you know, maybe, you know, it's the woman that created post-it notes. That was an entrepreneurial endeavor because she suddenly realized that there's something that's, this glue doesn't work for this particular area, but maybe it could work for this. She was a secretary. I think what's really exciting right now is that we know that people aren't having one career for the rest of their lives and that we should be encouraging people to step into careers as they change and grow, that that possibly means that they're going to build on the careers that they have had before then. And it don't, they don't have to choose at 18 or 16 the career they're going to have for the rest of their lives. I've never asked my children, what are you going to do when you grow up? I've never asked them. I refuse to ask them. It's more a case of who are you going to be, not what are you going to do? I think that is a, uh, a powerful way for us to wrap up this conversation, this intriguing conversation about uh, the type of person we aspire to be. Sitting here today, listening to you, what I what I did was the moment you, of course, mentioned Italian poetry, I uh, had to, of course, source a piece from Dante Aguilera, Aguilera to finish this off. Beautiful. Um, it's, it's actually a little piece, a passage that uh, is special to me because it reminds me of the glorious time I had in Cinque Terre in, in Italy, which I... I consider my kind of heaven on earth, you know, uh, but it's going to make sense in a moment why I picked this piece in relation to our conversation with you, Kemi. So it's titled La Vita Nuova. In the book, which is my memory, on the first page, that is, that is the chapter when I first met you, appear the words, here begins a new life. So I picked that because we've just encountered a pretty amazing individual with a touch of a bit of style, an individual oozing with character, an unrivaled and unapologetic wonder. We've encountered a dynamic individual who has taught us the profoundness of the space of permission where life begins. Thank you very much, Kemi.
Thank you. Thank you for reading me poetry. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here with both of you today. Thanks, Kimmy. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.